so this is a strange experience for me. I've, I've never preached and then preached the same thing again about an hour or two later. So I feel like News 24. I should have the, uh, the little uh, rhythm going. So my name's Pete. If we haven't met, I'm married to Jenny, who is right here. And you will have heard her speak two weeks ago if you were here. Um, so I'm interested in you know, comparisons afterwards as to who is best. Um, it'll go down well in our house. Um, I, I introduced myself as well earlier as a, a very bewildered but very happy Aston Villa fan. I don't know if we've got any Aston Villa fans in tonight. No, no, again, none this afternoon, none tonight. But anyway, I'm, they're doing amazingly well, if you didn't know. So, uh, yeah, it's increased my faith greatly. Yeah. Okay, so, um, yeah, let me start with this. So, I don't know if you've ever watched the film or read the short story of The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Has anybody read that? Do you know that one? So, the... the um, kind of conceit of it is a very uh, henpecked, uh, mundane, uh, middle-of-the-road American guy whose life is just completely dull. Um, his greatest excitement is when he drives his wife to the beauty salon on a Saturday to go shopping, and then he waits for her, drives her back. Anyway, his, um, his life, because it is so dull, becomes this kind of just fantasy world. So as he turns on the engine, the sound of the engine roaring, suddenly he's an air pilot, he's a fighter pilot in World War II rescuing uh, the world. And then uh, as they drive past the hospital, uh, he's looking in and he's thinking, I'm that surgeon, I'm saving somebody's life. And of course, he's brought down to earth with a bump every time. Darling, you're driving too quick. Concentrate on the road. And it's just dull, dull, dull. So I don't know if you can relate to Walter Mitty. I, my hunch is about 50% of the room will be saying, yeah, yeah, I kind of do that. And about 50% will be saying, how ridiculous, how could you possibly do that? But what I think probably all of us do is have a sense of a story uh, for our lives. So I've called this changing the story, how his story changes our story to make history. Do you get, get what I've done there? Thank you, don't groaning, come on, come on. Um, so, um, yeah, we have a story that we uh, live out and we perhaps think of ourselves and we think, um, you know, our life story has just been an adventure or we perhaps think it's just been marked by tragedy or comedy uh, or maybe a mix of all of those is probably the most likely, isn't it? So, I would like you just to think about that for a minute. In fact, what I'd like to do first is to turn to somebody near you and tell them who, if they were making a film of your life, what actor would you choose to be you? Go for it. Okay, that's got everybody talking. Now it's time to come back. Would anybody like to, anybody like to tell me what uh, actor they have chosen? Have we got any good ones? There's a good one over here, clearly. Do share. Do I, we, we had that earlier, that's amazing. Another one, another one. Yeah, brilliant. Any others? Shout them out. Everybody's gone quiet now. Go on, John, what was yours? Oh, yeah, go on. Jim Carrey, brilliant. 
What were you, John? Nicholas Cage, who you were born on the same day as, apparently. Yeah. Practically, you're Walter Mitty again, aren't you? You're, you're there. Yeah. <laughs> Any ladies? We've had a couple of male actors. Shout them out. Oh, it's a, it's a quiet crowd tonight. Yeah. We had, had a few more of these. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Jay's Meg Ryan. Excellent. So, yeah. So, our story. Um, there's a quote. If we can just have the next slide. Um, there's a quote that you may have come across if you've been around ENC for a little while that uh, comes from Pete Hughes, who's the vicar of KXC Church in London. And he says this, the story you live in is the story you live out. So if we just think about that for a minute, what that means. So essentially that kind of narrative that we have in our heads about ourselves, you know, when you find yourself saying, I always dot, 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 or um, you know, this is, this is me, or this is exactly how I am. I couldn't do that. I can be this. This is what's going to happen. And sometimes we get a bit fatalistic, going, oh, it's always going to happen this way for me. That is the story um, in, that you are living in. And that affects hugely, doesn't it, the story that we live out, the person that we are today, tomorrow, into the future, and ultimately for the rest of our lives, uh, that story is the one that we live out. So just have a think for yourself about what is your story now? We've talked a little bit. We've thought about which character we're going to be, uh, which actor's going to play us. But think about what is your story at the moment? What is that voice in your head at the moment? What's that story that you're living in? Okay. So, uh, yeah, I've got to have the next slide. Trying not to sound like Chris Whitty here. There we go. Um, so we're going to go through stories. We're going to start with Jesus' story, which we've kind of tracked through John over the last few months. Um, and then we'll focus in on Peter's story um, in this narrative. Um, and then we'll look at our story. We'll in fact, look at another story of somebody more recent and then at our story today. So just thinking about that journey through, and really what I want you to be kind of looking out for is the impact of Jesus on stories. What's the impact of Jesus on Peter's story? What's the impact of Jesus on our story today? Okay, so we'll start. Uh, John's Gospel, this is the epilogue, the very last part. I, I, we cut it slightly short, but it's most of the very last chapter. Um, we've been through an incredible journey in John's Gospel. It's, it's written so nicely, isn't it, as a story to read. It's a great story. Uh, so we've had people early on identifying Jesus, saying, you're a rabbi, uh, you're the, um, a king. Just people kind of just naming out, just calling out who they saw Jesus to be. And then as we go through John's gospel, we have the I am statements. I am the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. And so it kind of co continues through Jesus identifying um, who he is. We've also come across mystery and surprise. We see the miracles of uh, water into wine and the bread and the fish, the healings of poorly people, uh, even a raising or two from the dead. This promised king that we heard from Jenny a couple of weeks ago on, on um, Palm Sunday uh, this promised king, and yet not as we expect. He just wasn't kind of fitting uh, what people expected. And it all culminated um, in the surprise of him so clearly identifying himself as God. We talked about the I am's. The kind of final I am is actually in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane um, when uh, he's asked to identify himself. Are you Jesus? I am. And as he says, I am, the sheer power of that knocks everybody flying, doesn't it? It's like this incredible moment of actually, wow, this, this is totally God. If we weren't convinced before, this is, uh, 
this is showing it. So there's this kind of crescendo, isn't there, of um, his identity as God. But then another mystery, another surprise, he goes to his death and everybody's really confused and dumbfounded and it's, it's not what they expected. And then the amazing surprise of him rising again. So quite a journey, quite a story. Um, and then he reappears to the disciples. He gives them the power to forgive sins. Um, but then it kind of goes a bit fuzzy, doesn't it? We're not quite sure of the timeline, but suddenly we find the disciples are kind of looking a bit lost again, and they're on a boat, and they've gone back to what they know. They've gone back to fishing. And they've been all night doing what they know, and it's been completely fruitless. And then there's a stranger on the shore who says, throw your net over the other side, which I wouldn't do myself if I was a professional something or other, fisherman. I'm not sure I'd take the advice of the person on the shore, clearly not in a boat, um, but they do, amazingly. And of course, the miracle of fish, the encounter with Jesus. So there's a couple of, just as a, a quick aside, a couple of things that I'd like you just to think about that I think are quite amusing details that also are ones to think about in a deeper way, perhaps. So the first one is Peter taking off his outer garment, wrapping it around himself, jumping in the water and uh, swimming into land. I'm kind of trying to picture this. So it's cold, it's uh, dark probably, or just about getting light. And he dives in. I don't know why he was thinking that tying his outer garment around him was going to help. I guess it wouldn't drag in the water. Um, but he must have been so wet. And, and whether he did a Statue of Liberty with his clothes and he's trying to keep them out of the water as he goes, I don't know what was going on there. Uh, but he would have reached the shore wet and cold and either semi-naked or in very wet clothes. So hopefully that fire was good at drying him out. Uh, and then the other thing is that as he steps out from um, the sea, there is a fish already on the fire, isn't it? Jesus has already got fish going. So this additional fish is perhaps not needed already? I don't know. It's an interesting thing to think about. And then the final thing is that somebody counted all the fish. Can you believe it? So this is the uh, Messiah, the Son of God, who so clearly is God and has just miraculously risen from the dead. You know, they've had precious moments with him. Who was it that while he's there, is actually over here going one, two, three, four. My guess is Matthew. Tax collectors never stop counting. So that's my theory. <laughs> Okay, so thinking about stories, thinking about films. If this was Hollywood, this is the the kind of this would be the kind of culmination of the film, wouldn't it? This would be the last scene, um, and we'd kind of see uh, the camera panning in or, or, or zooming in on Peter and on Jesus, and you'd have the kind of dialogue, "Do you love me?" And then we'd have the reply, and it would all be kind of quite intense. The music would go up. And then you feel like, really, what should happen is they just do that a couple of times, and then there's a big hug, lots of laughter, and then we kind of, zoom, kind of move out, and we see the nice fire, and the music starts, and the credits uh, roll. But instead, Jesus says something a bit jarring to Peter, really jarring for us when we're reading a good story. Suddenly, he ruins this moment, or so it feels, by saying, you're going to die. You're going to die really quite an unpleasant death. So I think as a reader, it makes you go, whoa, hang on a minute, that wasn't the nice Hollywood ending I was expecting. You start to think, well, why, why did Jesus say that? Well, when we look at his three responses to Peter, it's all about being a shepherd, isn't it? Feed my lambs, look after my sheep, feed my sheep. That Jesus is referencing this idea of being a shepherd. And when we look back in John, the point at which 
um, he references that before, is John 10, about living life to the full, about him being the good shepherd. And of course, he follows that on with that he's going to lay down his life for his sheep. He's not like a hired hand who would run away, who would deny (laughs) or betray. Um, He is the good shepherd and he will lay down his life. So really what he's doing with Peter is almost kind of, there's a bit of a baton being handed on here, a bit of a sense of now it's your over to you. Uh, I am commissioning you for this. And for our ears, it's a bit jarring to hear about laying down your life. But actually, when we take a kind of eternal perspective and certainly a cultural one, that was the ultimate privilege, wasn't it? That was, that's the ultimate thing to say to somebody, you're going to give your whole life for this thing. This is how much you value it. And the difference between being a shepherd and a fisherman So when Jesus initially calls Peter, he calls him to be a fisher of men, and now he's calling him to be a shepherd. There's quite a distinction, certainly from my perspective, about the two, that fishing is, and I am not a fisherman, so please, apologies if you are, but I would say fishing is boom and bust, isn't it? You go out on your boat, you throw your net out, you might get a huge catch, you might get uh, nothing at all. Whereas being a shepherd is just a constant, isn't it? It's 24-7. You are out there in all weathers. You're out there day and night. You are looking after those sheep to the point where, probably not today, but in those days, you know, you literally, your life is there. That is your life. Looking after those sheep is your livelihood and your life. Um, you know, it costs you everything. And that's a little bit of a, a odds with how where we've seen Peter so far, isn't it? Peter's been quite an impetuous character, um, so we'll jump into Peter's story now. You know, he's, he's not um, Mr. Reliable. He's not the, the kind of profile of that. And he is a fisherman, of course, anyway. Um, so when we look at his life, we see uh, somebody who's a married fisherman. We don't know huge amounts about him. We know he's a married fisherman. He's enthusiastic and impetuous, first to jump in uh, to whatever what's, whatever's happening. Uh, he identifies who Jesus is, kind of before others. Um, but he doesn't really understand and then, of course, there are a number of times when basically he does spectacular fails, aren't there? He uh, tries to walk on water and doesn't quite manage that. Uh, he tries driving out demons with the disciples. That doesn't work. Uh, fights the forces of evil by getting a big sword and chopping off somebody's ear. And then he gets healed again. Um, and then, of course, his, his biggest, uh, his denial um, of Jesus. So there's enough failure in there that you think those nearest and dearest, probably Mrs. Peter would have said to him, Love, give it a rest. Go back to what you know. Go back to the fishing. So he does. And of course he catches nothing. Then a final encounter with Jesus. Another miraculous catch of fish. And he's all in again. All in the water with wet clothes. All in with Jesus. Sat around the fire. I wonder whether he'd almost kind of forgotten himself about the fact that he had denied Jesus. And then I reckon it kind of all comes back. And John's quite good, isn't he, painting this picture? Oh, fire. When was I last around a fire? Uh, And then being asked three questions. Okay, yeah. Uh, I think the kind of penny drops at that point, doesn't it? So there's a real awkwardness of the moment um, and a hurtfulness of having his love for Jesus questioned. What a story he's living in. But as we've said, what is the Jesus impact on that story? How does he change for Peter the story that Peter's living in to change the story he's living out. Most often, if I'm asked, do you love me? The person usually loves me and just wants to know if I love them back. 
So why did Jesus ask Peter three times? Well, from a kind of literary point of view, it's a nice symmetry, isn't it, with the three denials uh, and the three kind of affirmations. But I think it's a bit deeper than that, because as Peter says, Jesus knows all things. He knows uh, already Peter's heart. He knows what the response is going to be. But I think it's for Peter, isn't it, to draw out something in him that he, um, you know, is he all in? Is he just a celebrity fanboy? Is he just kind of wowed by Jesus? Or is he actually something more? Is he willing to give everything to this? Is this a, a, a real deal for him? And I think it's also interesting for us, and this is where we'll kind of move into us today, that actually what Jesus asks isn't, um, are you going to keep following me? Or um, are you going to do all the stuff I taught you? But he just asks, do you love me? That that's his priority. That is the number one thing that he's drilling home to Peter. Nothing else. Not his calling, not his character, not his gifts. Um, You know, all those things that we might think uh, will be up there. But actually just simply, do you love me? So there's a real sense of presence before power. Because as we know, or we may know, Um, The story of Peter goes on in Acts, and he does the most incredible things. And really, we see a total 180, don't we, in terms of all those failures suddenly become these incredible moments where uh, he sees miracles happen, and he becomes a bold and amazing and effective preacher. But Jesus was emphasizing, wasn't he, love, presence before power. What a hinge point of history it is. So, we've talked about Jesus' story. We've talked about Peter's story and the impact of Jesus on his story. Let's think now, let's kind of fast forward to nearly today. I'm going to read you a story, uh, some of a story, of a um, Chinese Christian um, in the 20th century. This comes from a great book, which I really recommend. If you were at ENC side, you'll know, uh, because it was called, uh, can't speak. It was called Clay and Canvas, or is called Clay and Canvas, and Anna read out, or Jenny read out a, um, a story from it. So, this guy is called Wang. He was a Chinese pastor um, in the 19th century, 1960s particularly. Obviously in China, um, it was illegal to be a freely speaking Christian. They kind of had a state-sponsored church that was very tightly controlled. Um, he knowingly preached himself to prison, essentially, in that he, he preached a, a true gospel, uh, was imprisoned, Uh, persecuted in prison, but then was broken, really, after about a year, um, was was asked to sign something to say, I renounce it all, and whatever, and he just gave in, and he signed that piece of paper. But then, after he was free, he kind of had that Peter moment, really, that feeling of, like, Peter denying Jesus, and just thought, no, I can't do this, I have to be true to my saviour. And he voluntarily went back to the authorities, tore up the thing that he signed, and was re- arrested. Just incredible. Um, He was in prison for a number of years, um, and this is where we're going to join the story. So this is early 1960s. Solitary confinement feels like hell on earth. Here, time is punctuated only by the unreliable provision of rations and the beatings of the guards. For an evangelist like Wang, Solitary confinement isn't just physically taxing, it's psychologically and spiritually devastating too. In this prison, there are so many who don't yet know their saviour. Who will preach the gospel to them? 
Years later, he would speak of his time in prison like this. When I was put in jail, I was devastated. I was an evangelist. But that wasn't all. When he'd first entered prison, all Wang wanted to do was write, publish, and preach. He felt deprived of purpose and stripped of his calling. Everything that had previously given him meaning, his role as a leader, teacher, and pastor, had been robbed from him. But today, Wang is not thinking about his suffering. Over the past few months, his feeling of utter emptiness has been replaced by a strange sense of fullness. Stripped of everything in which he previously found purpose, he was learning to simply be with Jesus. And that had given him new life. Towards the end of his life, with a glint in his eyes, Wang would explain to others that these years spent alone in a cell were his honeymoon with Jesus. Wang's persecutors, with their brutal torture methods and unrelenting insults, thought they could break his faith. And yet, it was here, in this hellish place, where God seemed most absent, that Wang's faith was being forged harder than iron. It was here that Wang would experience the sweetest intimacy with Jesus that he had ever known. It was in his cell, Wang would later say, that he learned what it meant to walk with God, not by following a set of disciplines or a list of spiritual activities, but simply by walking with God at walking pace, by slowing down, by learning to embrace the long and painful silence, by learning to simply be with Jesus and not just live for him. A prisoner of the Communist Party, Wang, was a free man, because with every distraction and obstacle ripped away, he was finally experiencing his honeymoon with Jesus. And for all this, he would always be thankful. Even so, Wang still yearned to share the message of Jesus with his fellow inmates. There were hundreds of men in this prison who had no knowledge of their true savior, but Wang had no way of reaching them. One day, Wang was struck by a moment of inspiration. In this impenetrable cell, he was totally cut off from the rest of the prison, except for one thing, the toilet. Realizing that the sewage pipes running from the pit toilet in the corner of his cell were linked to others in his block, he knelt down and began to preach. The sound carried. Even in prison, God had given him a pulpit. For weeks, he received no response, but Wang persisted, and one by one, the other inmates began to respond. Over the next seven years, 96 prisoners would come to faith through Wang's preaching. And then we skip to the mid-1980s. Released from prison, Wang would look back on his 23 years of imprisonment with a peculiar fondness. In prison, he suffered some of the worst horrors imaginable. Solitary confinement, torture at the hands of his fellow inmates, and brutal separation from his wife. Early on, he had denied Jesus in order to escape such horrors. And yet, it was in prison that Jesus taught Wang how to walk with him. Asked about his experiences of prison a few years before his death, Wang explained, I had to learn to just learn to love Jesus. Persecution is not great in itself. It's what it does that brings a benefit. And its benefit is to strip away life's distractions so that it's just you and Christ and nothing else.
the nurturing of that relationship then becomes the priority. That's why a cell works so well. Wang was forced into a cell. Others of us must learn to force ourselves into one so that we may learn to simply be with Jesus. I was pushed into a cell, but you will have to push yourselves into one. You have no time to know God. You need to build yourself a cell so that you can do for yourself what persecution did for me. Simplify your life and know God. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay. So, to go to our story today, could we have the next slide? Thank you. Um, so, yeah, back to our story that we live in and the story that we live out. What an encouragement it is to think of Peter, to think of Wang, even uh, though he was so great that he had renounced Jesus, and then to see what happened after that, that just things got amazing. Um, there are so many things, aren't there, that can be a challenge to us today. Whether we know Jesus already, or maybe we've known him, but we feel like we've gone away from him, um, what an encouragement to know. We can come back, and not just come back. Jesus' reinstatement of Peter was not just a, okay, you can come in, but you'll come in at a low level, or we'll, you know, we'll see if we trust you, but just a complete uh, reinstatement and a commissioning to something so great and so much more. So really, my encouragement, my challenge to you is to do that today. If you are feeling like you have betrayed Jesus or you've just not made the grade, you've, you've worried about how you've been, or perhaps you are starting as a Christian, you're thinking, am I going to mess this up? Am I not going to be able to do this? Do not fear. This is the story. This is the story that you're in, and this is the Jesus that can change your story in a wonderful way. So, let me just come here. Yeah, so We've talked, we've referenced, haven't we, with Peter and with Wang, um, persecution at just an incredible level. And for us, uh, living in Western UK, 21st century, for most of us, that would be a pretty unusual experience and probably something that it's hard to get your head around. I certainly know when I read things like that, it just blows me away and I really struggle. I think, my goodness, can I really, would I really be able to stand um, and face that kind of persecution? But you know, the, the response that we can have is a bit like, you know, the journey of a thousand miles starts with that single step, doesn't it? What's something small? What's something that I can do to change my story, to allow Jesus to come and change that story? And of course, it's all about that intimacy, isn't it? That presence of Jesus. How can we increase the time we spend with Jesus, the time that we become more and more familiar with his spirit and living uh, for him? So, you know, we hear about learning to, uh, about praying all the time everywhere. Probably too much for us at the moment, but maybe we pray some of the time somewhere. Um, you know, learning to give generously. Just give a little bit more than you do now. Um, your time with Jesus, try and increase that a little bit more than you do now. It does not have to be something that is blowing you out of the water right away today. But see where that takes you. See where that journey takes you. Maybe tomorrow when you're in work. Just casually mention that you were at church yesterday. Drop it into the conversation. What might that do? What kind of response might you get? What conversations might it start? Okay. So, 
we are going to have a ministry time, I think. That's okay. Oh, sorry, I forgot these last two bits, didn't I? Yes, I'm at two questions. One from Jesus, one from me. The Jesus question, do you love me? Just be thinking about that. What is your response to that question? I don't think Jesus said that to Peter to make him feel guilty, and, and you shouldn't too. Don't feel like it's a, a guilt thing, but a searching thing. Search your heart. What's your response when Jesus asks you, do you love me? And then my question to you is just about how you can seek more of his presence today.